Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, last episode, uh, Rowan, Patrick, and I worked with uh, Rihanna Pratchett to review X-Men number 40. It was nonsense. All you need to know is they fought a robot alien version of Frankenstein's monster. That's really no relevance otherwise. Uh, we've, we've talked about how in the 60s, in this era of the X-Men at least, it seems like every issue or two is a different storyline as they're really trying to catch on to some readers because the book was not doing very well. Uh, today we're going to be reviewing X-Men number 41, which was from February 1968. Uh, this issue is written by Roy Thomas. Uh, with uh, art by Don Heck and oh I forgot who the inker was I gotta look again with art by uh, Don Heck and George Tusca of course uh, with uh, letters by Sam Rosen and uh, this is called Now Strikes the Subhuman uh, we are here, uh, joined again by Daryl from the X Factor Investigations podcast how are you Daryl? I'm doing great, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So happy to have you. And then we have a first-time guest, Mr. Kevin Gadzalinski. Am I saying that right? You got it. Yeah, it's a it's a long one. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Kevin is an incredible cosplayer. I've been following on uh, Instagram for a long time. Uh, who is putting up all sorts of thirsty posts always, and I love it. You know, <laughs> and See, then I'm all covered up today. It's great. Well, that's a shame. Pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> and then the uh, the wonderful writer uh, Neil Neil. I want to make sure I'm saying your last name correctly. It's Clyde. Yep. Yep. Neil okay. Clyde. I, uh, I've, I've made the mistake of jumping in too quickly on last names before. So is it Clyde or Clyde? But Neil Clyde, it is, oh. it is Clyde. Welcome, Neil. So let's go in the order of uh, Kevin, Neil, Daryl, as we're introducing ourselves. Let us know your names, your pronouns, uh, what we might know you from or what you're working on. And then the question I have for everybody during introductions today is tell me your worst experience on public transportation. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it's me. All right. Well, I'm Kevin. He, him, all that stuff. Um, yeah, I do a lot of cosplay, do modeling, uh, just random. Sometimes I do singing videos. Um, I also have a Charmed podcast called Words of the Witches, where I cover the published material in the Charmed universe, so all the books and comics in that universe, um, and then tie it back to the show and de determine if it's canon or not. Uh, <laughs> so that's fun. And then, yeah, uh, I do cosplay Cyclops a lot. That's my go-to X-Men, working on Dokken. Uh, so things are happening. <laughs> you, you cosplay sexy Cyclops. Well, I, I do both. I do sexy Cyclops and, you know, a regular Cyclops, but I guess it's all sexy <laughs> when you think about it. <laughs> um, as, for, for, as far as the uh, public transportation question, I suppose when I got my phone stolen on the bus, <laughs> I had it hanging out here. Some guy just came, ran past it, grabbed it and ran out the door. And instinctually i ran after him <laughs> and then halfway like two blocks down i'm like why am i chasing him so i i turned back and the bus waited for me and i just went back on the bus and called it a day but it was fine <laughs> it was <laughs> well that was nice at least yeah i mean i didn't get shot so you know that's a plus <laughs> sorry about your phone uh neil how let's have you go next sure hi uh neil clyde uh comic book writer graphic novelist uh, designer. I've been writing comics for a, a while now. Um, relatable to this podcast, I've written a couple of X-Men stories. I wrote a Colossus short story with Mike Oming for X-Men Unlimited 14. I just recently wrote a short Quentin Choir Kid Omega story 
for um, uh, an anthology called School of X from Aconite Publishing Marvel Books. And I've also written a prose adaptation of Spider-Man Craven's Last Hunt mm-hmm. uh, that came out a couple of years ago. Um, I've got a, actually yesterday just announced a new five issue comic book series coming out from Comicsology Originals in May, a thriller that actually is set on a, a subway train, which is kind of fun. <laughs> um, let's see, in terms of my craziest mass transit story, um, so I am what my family, uh, to their chagrin, has called a, a commuting sleeper. Uh, I sleep on trains, I sleep on buses, I, I'll sleep anywhere. And so when I was commuting in from, I live in New Jersey and I was working, I've, I've been working in Manhattan for years now. And I usually take like a nice 20 to 30 minute cat nap from my town in New Jersey into Port Authority. And one day uh, going in, there's usually the last stop out of New Jersey from my little town is this hotel nearby. And I always know once we've left, left where the hotel is, I, I've got some sleeping time. And I fell asleep right as we pulled out of the hotel and I woke up and we were pulling back into the hotel. Oh God. And I looked, I looked up around and basically said, I'm the only one on this bus. <laughs> and we had driven into Manhattan. Everyone had gotten off on Port Authority. The bus had turned around and come back to my town. Uh, and I had basically done a uh, kind of full route of, of the commute oh. and had to had to get back into the city. Commute? How long is that full commute? Uh, it's usually about 45 minutes, uh, okay, depending, okay. On, depending on traffic. It wasn't bad. And thankfully, there was actually another bus pulling out when we pulled in. So I was like, wait, get me on that bus. And so I, I managed to get in with a short apology to my boss. I thought you were going to say, I was on the bus sleeping for 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I've actually had not 12 hours, but I have actually slept on a subway uh basically the full circuit of the subway without realizing it. So going from like Queens into Manhattan out to Brooklyn. And I lived in Riverdale at the time and basically had to call my wife and say, uh, I'm at the end of Brooklyn and I'm going to be about 45 minutes late. So I maybe I should stop sleeping on my commute. And then Daryl. Hey, I'm Daryl. I am the co-host of the X Factor Files podcast with my partner, Philip. Um, where we are covering issue by issue the X Factor investigations run. So, um, Chad, you were a huge inspiration to us in terms of the format, and we're covering that. We just got started, so everyone check it out. I use he, him pronouns, and I think my craziest story involving mass transit would have been out in Boston, where I, um, I lived in Massachusetts a few years, and we had summer interns come out. And I was showing them around, and we were going out to Quincy on a train, and this gentleman came on wearing a boa constrictor, um, just like Britney Spears style. Britney Spears, he was not. And um, <laughs> no one confronted him. We all just stood there and sort of stared. And he got off in another couple stops. And we were like, what the hell was that? Did, did a guy with a snake just come on the train right now? <laughs> so um, after that, the interns and I were joking for the entire summer that we were going to start a website called peopleofthetrain.com and just document strange transit adventures. I feel like you get a lot of participation in that. Uh, so my name is Chad. <laughs> I, use, I use he, him pronouns. I have a lot of crazy public transit stories, despite the fact that I live in Salt Lake City where there really isn't much public transit, but I've, I'm well-traveled and I lived in Philadelphia for a long time. Uh, but my two quick stories I'll share. One time I took a Greyhound bus on a 12-hour journey 
my mother drove me to the Greyhound station. The Greyhound backed into her car, like smashed it. So they had to call a different Greyhound, which then we got on. And then two hours into the drive, the bus broke down and I got stranded in a town in Montana, like population 100 for like 14 hours before the next bus could come to get us. It was, it was the longest day. But the craziest one, I was visiting New York City. We met an old friend at a Starbucks whose phone got stolen and he had a tracker on his phone. So we went to the police station. This is a true story. It's worthy of a longer version sometime. And the police station were like, well, let's go get the guy. So we're in the back of the police car. We realized that the phone is with the thief on a public bus. And so we're like chasing a bus down Fifth Avenue with the sirens on. <laughs> they pulled it. <laughs> we got the phone back and uh, it was it was it was uh, quite the adventure. So there's uh, there's my public transit stories. Uh, briefly. <laughs> Uh, so let's uh, let's take a minute to uh, to get to know uh, Neil in particular. But Kevin, I also want to talk to you a little bit about uh, your work. Uh, Daryl, it's wonderful to have you back on. Uh, our, our listeners are familiar. And in fact, Daryl and his husband were boyfriends. Excuse me. We're just on uh, our episode with Bob McLeod a few weeks ago. So uh, thank you for pitching in today, man. We appreciate you. Um, Neil, tell us a little bit about your relationship with the X-Men and a little as your early journey as a writer. Yeah. So look, I mean, I, I grew growing up, you know, uh, in, in the eighties, like if you were a comic guy, you were a comic, comic, anyone, uh, guy, girl, uh, you, you were basically reading X-Men. I mean, the X-Men back then was, was, you know, the Claremont run with John Byrne and, and, uh, it was, it was fascinating. And so I, some of my first Marvels were, were X-Men comics. Um, and, um, I've, actually had a small period of my life where I stopped reading X-Men comics. I just moved on to other things and left sort of the continuity behind um, and got to really do some work with the characters uh, over the years. And um, in particular, when, when I was um, pitching Aconite recently, who, who I did the Kate Omega story for, um, some, some, some stories, I actually had to cram a bunch of the continuity I had missed from like the Morrison run on into my head and thank God for libraries because I spent a lot of time re you know, taking out a lot of large volumes and just really just catching up. And um, it's been, it's been amazing to really jump back into that world and, and, and read, you know, whether it was the Morrison run or the Bendis run uh, where a lot of the Aconite stories, but um, I, I was able to really kind of get back into it. And it's been fascinating. And I'm, I'm really enjoying the, the Krakoa era now. Um, you know, the, the work that's being done currently at Marvel um, and w was actually really happy that I got to do a small tease of that in the Kid Omega story, which was a lot of fun. Um, the first story I'd done, like I mentioned, was back in 2006, that Colossus story. Um, and I had, I had been pitching um, Marvel for a while to do some, some stuff over there. And I was really lucky to be able to do the last uh, issue of that, of that x-men unlimited run yeah um it was it was myself and i mentioned myself and mike Oming, um doing this short story about about uh, colossus and his sort of artistic uh his artistic temperament and it's actually titled how to be an artist um and as an artist myself i really wanted to kind of look at you know some of some of his thinkings about how to create art and what does it mean to really kind of delve into creating art which i don't think a lot of the comics have really kind of touched upon um, so it was nice. We could be actually prepared with, with, um, CB Sobolski had done the first story in that run. And I think David yeah. Aha, uh, drew that issue. Um, so it's, it's a nice little issue. Um, 
yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not really sure what else I can say about the X-Men. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. <laughs> uh, who's your favorite? Uh, it's probably Colossus, I think. Um, so being able to kind of jump in and do a Colossus story right off the bat was was really kind of a, a gift. Um, Mike and I actually have been trying to, to do another Colossus story over the years. We've been putting together this Colossus and Asgard uh, idea that we've been playing around for a while. Um, we haven't really kind of got much uh, headway with it, but it's it's fun to talk about. Um, uh, and you're going to laugh. I actually, as I've been really doing my research and especially for like the School of X stuff, I've actually kind of gotten into, I'm a, I'm a summer, Summer's brother, Stan, like uh, Scott, Alex, and, and Gabe, you know, those are, I know a lot of people don't love Cyclops. Um, I, there's something about him, something about him as a jerk that I kind of like. Uh, as a teacher, as a jerk, as kind of this, you know, modern uh, Magneto almost. He's kind of, you know, at least in the, the era that we're kind of playing in. Um, he's, you know, headmaster of the school at the time uh, in the Bendis, kind of the Bendis era. And he's also kind of like this social media figurehead. He's out there kind of like trying to save, you know, save the world for mutants. And because... Because he's recently murdered Professor X and is of course <laughs> right, and he's trying to he's trying to show that like maybe I should do something about that. Um, so I, I think I think I kind of love the Shakespearean aspect of of X Men, right? So like when you watch um, even like some of the films and you're watching you know Patrick Stewart and, and Ian McKellen really do these grandiose monologues. There's something about it that I, I just love. This like the the gravitas and and. Cyclops isn't as Shakespearean per se as they are. I mean, he's, you know, he's definitely got his, his thing, but um, there's something about the drama of the Summers family. Um, and, and I'm going to add actually Christopher Summers to that as well. There's just something about that lineage that I love. And if I could play with them, you know, in stories, I, I, I would love to do that. So. I have a question. So, um, in the past year, Adam X was revealed to be the fourth Summers brother. Dun dun dun. <laughs> How do you feel about that? How do you rank the brothers at this? So point? I so I actually went back and read uh, read some of that, um, and I'm not really sure where I. I, I guess I'm I'm still new to that character. Um, so for me, I've really done most of my research. Of most of my reading has kind of focused around Scott, Alex, and Gabe, and and. I kind of need a little bit of time to really kind of come to terms with this fourth brother. Um, but so I'm not really, I don't really have an answer. I'm kind of like, I don't know. Let me, let me interject briefly. A lot, of our, around it. a lot of our listeners are kind of neophytes to the X-Men or kind of starting at the beginning with us. So let me explain very briefly. We will do a Cyclops centric episode one day, but very briefly you learn later. <laughs> We're going to talk about Cyclops as an orphan today. But you learn later that Cyclops and his little brother Alex were in a plane and thrown out of it, and they believe their parents died, but their parents were actually taken into space. Uh, Cyclops' dad survives and becomes a space pirate named Corsair, which we talked about in the time travel episode, if you guys follow it as ever that long. Uh, but his mother was killed in space. But first, they harvested a baby out of her womb that becomes the third Summer's brother, Gabriel, who's the character Vulcan. And then they also used her DNA mixed with a couple alien races to create a fourth brother named Adam X. Uh, <laughs> as Connor Goldsmith would say, don't worry about it right now. <laughs> it's okay. 
but it's a, it's a complicated little family. Uh, uh, Kevin, let me ask a little bit about your journey with the X-Pen as well. I just got to say, I was really happy about all that Cyclops talk right now because I feel like he doesn't get the love he deserves. And I'm just like, my heart is full. Okay. <laughs> because he's a jerk. Let's just, let's just put that out there. I love the guy, but he's a jerk. So. Yes, he's, he's definitely a jerk at times. Um, but I think he's also very tragic. And I really like that about characters. Like, I feel like they're layered and they have like this inner turmoil that they, don't, they can't let the world see. Um, and that's always interesting to me. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, so, um, Kevin, tell me a little bit about your like early fandom of the X Men or your journey along with the franchise. Sure. Um, I guess the first introduction was like most people my age was the '90s cartoon, <laughs> the animated series, um, and then I went on to watch uh, X Men Evolution and you know Wolverine and the X Men. So I was watching all those things. Um, I have read a few comics. Probably started in high school, so I came late to actually reading comics. Um, but uh, I always liked the things I was reading and the things I was picking up. So, uh, you know, and then I would just scour the internet and research what I could when I couldn't, when I couldn't find things to read or what they weren't as easily accessible to me. So um, I wouldn't say I'm an ex- X-Men expert, <laughs> um, but I do enjoy every time I get to visit it and, and play around with them. So. Yeah, wonderful. As we yeah. say often, one of the reasons we started this podcast in particular is a lot of people who love the X-Men have never read the early stuff. So we'll get into that yeah, yeah. in a minute. But these old 60s books, there's something <laughs> besides Claremont and something besides the movies and the cartoons. Uh, so uh, let's talk Colossus for just a minute, Neil. You uh, you wrote this Colossus short in the back of X-Men Unlimited, volume two, number 14, with the incredible artist, uh, Michael. He often goes by Michael Avenoming, right? Uh, yeah. uh, he's just gorgeous. If you look up his art, if you have not uh, it's a really stylized book. It's very deep and thought-centric about the process of creating art from pain. Now, I'm a writer and a poet, but generally only once in a while. I've written some really impressive things. I've made a documentary. I write a lot of poetry. When I get into that writing space, it's almost always because I have something tickling at my heartstrings somewhere, something that's bothering me and needs to work itself out. And uh, sometimes that's a project that will last months, or sometimes it's just an emotional thing that needs to sort itself out. But almost always it comes from a painful place. And I think most people who produce art of any kind can relate to that, whether you're painting or drawing or writing. Uh, there's there's this gorgeous element of Colossus's character where he's just this very simple, family-focused, lovely person who's a painter with a lot of pain, but he also has a lot of trauma. And then he's encased in this, you know, steel hard shell and smashes things when he when he has to. Uh, he's he's a fan favorite for a reason. Tell me a little about your decision to tell this story in this way. It's really beautifully done. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you nailed a, a lot of it. So, look, I, I when I was living in New York, there's a period in your life as an artist in New York where you, you always go through sort of your own who am I as an artist, right? What, what, what am I doing? What am I putting into the world? And uh, I went through a lot of that uh, at a certain point in my life. Um, just kind of the, the stories I wanted to tell, the art I wanted to create. Um, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I, I started in comics. I mean, I started as a cartoonist, like I, I draw, but I don't do it fast and I don't do it well. Um, but like my, my early career was, you know, I had many comics and uh, I, I drew this one graphic novel and, and I'd like to do more of it, but I really pivoted to writing early on just because I could do it faster. I, I, I really enjoy the process of, of the blank page. 
Uh, and I've had editors tell me that like, you know, my storytelling skills far outweigh my uh, anatomy skills. Um, and so there, there's always a part of me that sort of struggles and I'm even kind of going through it now, right? Like as a, as a creator in comics, you go through what I call peaks or valleys, right? Sometimes you're doing like 15 things at the same time and you're really happy with what you're doing. And some people are loving it and some people aren't, but then you have like the valleys where things are quiet and you're like, well, am I done? Right? Like, what am I do next? What, what should my next book be? What should my next project be? Should I write a screenplay? Right? There's always a part of you as a writer that's sort of like questioning like the work you've done, the work you're doing and the work you're going to be doing. Yeah. And so a lot of that was really poured into this story, this sense of just like, what kind of artist is Colossus? What is he creating the right art? Like what, when we say, is he creating the right art? What does that even mean, right? Everybody's sort of artist objective, right? Everybody kind of does their own thing and everybody brings their own unique point of view to the table. And some of the artists in the story kind of question him about like what he's doing, you know, uh, that he's not really kind of like delving into, into the art he creates or, you know, the, like you said, the pain of, you know, the pain and suffering isn't coming to the page, which again, as a character, it's kind of funny because Colossus is a character that's had a lot of pain and suffering over the years. And one of the things that really kind of coalesced the story for me was, um, and I, you kind of see it a little bit in the comic. I, I used to spend a lot of time walking around the Met, uh, you know, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in, in, in Manhattan, uh, as well as the Museum of Modern Art. I, I'm, a, I'm a museum guy. And so a lot of the times I, I'd walk around and I'd look at like the, the ancient Egyptian exhibits or the, the knights. Um, and you realize that a lot of like museum pieces and a lot of art that are, that is in galleries really have this element of just like pain and tragedy and, you know, uh, a lot of that behind it. Um, and if you read the story, you know, Colossus really explores some of that, the sense of like, you know, you look at a suit of armor and you're like, oh, that's, that's awesome. But like, what did they use the suit of armor for, right? That they went out and they fought bloody wars. And that's this this like weird dichotomy of like, I'm this beautiful thing, I'm this beautiful object, but I'm really used to kill people. Um, and, you know, the same thing that is, you can say that for like sarcophagi, right? You look at this really beautiful sarcophagus and it's wonderful and it's, you know, inlaid with gold and what have you, but there's a corpse on the inside, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so that was really kind of what I was looking to explore this sense of not just who am I as an artist and what do I bring to the world? And does that change depending on my point of view from one day to the next, but also this sense of just like the dichotomy of beautiful things also being used for terrible things and vice versa. There's a gorgeous moment at the end. I know it's a short story, but you see Colossus pouring his heart and love and soul into this piece that he finally creates and he's proud of. And he puts it in a gallery and a woman walks by and basically goes, eh, <laughs> kind of walks by and leaves it behind. So this idea of putting your art out there and having people not see it as anything valuable, they don't realize the painstaking work you put into a book or a comic or even a podcast. <laughs> there's, there's a, you know, we just kind of casually shrug. Uh, uh, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Now, the uh, Aconite Books has uh, this kind of alternate universe of X-Men characters based in reality. We get to see very rich character depth stories but uh, but from uh, a different kind of alternate timeline, if you will. So they're they're not canon, but they are very near canon, if you will. Yep. Um, uh, you so School of X is an anthology of short stories by several writers, and we've had the opportunity on this podcast to talk to Robbie McNiven and Kath Loria 
And uh, two writers who've become pretty close personal friends, frankly, Tristan Palmgren and Carrie Harris, have come on again and again, uh, most recently on our Magneto episodes. So, uh, Neil, here's for you really quickly before I talk about your story. We we just did a huge two-part Magneto series where we review his his history in detail. And it's, it's moving and it's powerful, and we go across a lot of his history. It's, it's really wonderful. So, Neil wrote a story about Kid Omega, and I'll let you talk about Kid Omega, who goes to a Wonder Man appearance and Kang the Conqueror attacks, and it ends up sending Kid Omega back through time, through key moments of Magneto's history. Uh, and he's trying to kind of reckon with himself what his ideals are. It was it was a stunning and unexpected story. And don't tell anyone else this, but maybe my favorite in the School of X anthology. Yes. <laughs> tell everyone. Uh, tell tell us, everyone. Tell us a little bit about uh, Kid Omega, first of all, and then the story you told. It, I, you gave me everything I needed from a Kid, Kid Omega <laughs> story, but didn't know that I needed. <laughs> so let's talk about let's talk about writing writing other people's toys, right? So as a writer. Uh, especially as a writer like me, I don't get to do a lot of work with Marvel and DC characters. I've done some stories over the years, but it's very few and far between. And the moments that you have to play with the toys, as I like to call them, you really want to make them shine. And really, are, I, I, when I come into it, I look at it and say, well, this is the last time I'm going to get to do this, right? Uh, if I'm gonna, and, and since it might be the last time I get to do it, I'm going to use all the toys I want to play with. And... This story was great because it is out of continuity and we could kind of do somewhat what we wanted. Um, but uh, it's also sort of set in a very specific time, right? It's set during that Bendis era, this, you know, the, the Charles, Charles Xavier school era. Um, and I decided, and, and they basically said to us, Hey, here's kind of a list of characters that, that are sort of open that you can use. And, Kid Omega was in there, but he was kind of like, it was like a very brief, like, oh yeah, and, and Kid Omega. And I was like, what do you mean, and Kid Omega? He's awesome. I guess I'm just drawn to I jerks, mean, right? <laughs> well, so that's the thing. I think I'm just, I think uh, I'm drawn to assholes is what it is. Uh, and there's a part of me that basically, when I, when I reread, when I started kind of getting back into X-Men history, um, that Morrison run, right? The really kind of, jumped out at me. Like there was a lot of great ideas and fantastic. And I thought he was a character that was like, he was amazing. He basically was this guy who came along and, and I mean, at first he wasn't right. You know, you see in that arc, that first arc, the riot at Xavier's where he basically starts off as this little school kid and then basically decides, well, I'm going to just change the status quo and I'm going to turn my life on its head and I'm going to do what I want. Um, and that, you know, that, that um, Magneto was right shirt, you know, because Kid Quentin uh, and our pal Quentin loves T-shirts. And that moment where he was just kind of flaunting the Magneto was right shirt sort of struck me where I was like, was he? Was he right? And what was he right about? And so there was really that moment of, well, I'm going to let this kid figure out if Magneto actually was right. Um, and what's great about School of X and sort of that era is that you know, you've got Magneto and Cyclops and Magic and, and a bunch of characters. They're the headmasters right now, but they're kind of like headmasters, but they're also like militant. There's like a revolutionary aspect. And, I, you know, Quentin, that's that's all him, right? He's he's in a school, but he wants to, you know, come take his word, take the word to the masses. And so there was this sense of, here's a kid who thinks he knows everything. Here's a guy who thinks, like, I have no use for any of you, except for a few of you who are my pals. But generally, I know what I want to do. I know how I should be running my life and I know how mutants should 
you know, be acting in this world. And he basically thought he had all the answers. And one of the things that I wanted to do was have him have this really reckless moment where he basically says, uh, all right, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to do this thing that I really want to do. And something happens. And he takes this really kind of like this bill into the name of the story, by the way, for those who haven't read it, is called um, Kid Omega Faces the Music which uh, I really had just seen Bill and Ted, the, the, the most recent <laughs> Bill and Ted movie, and said, well, this is just kind of perfect. If I'm going to do a time travel story about two guys who really don't, you know, don't know their history, I've got Quentin and Glob, his, you know, Glob Herman is his best pal. That's what I'm going to name it, right? And so the point of the story is that these guys go kind of bouncing through X-Men history, and I don't want to kind of spoil it for anyone who wants to read it, but one of them learns something and one of them eventually learns something. And the one who eventually learns something is Quentin, right? Um, and the thing that really kind of brings him to that teachable moment is watching Magneto over time, right? right. They go back, they jump back to, you know, Magneto in the 1960s, uh, you know, the era that we're exploring here. And Magneto was, you know, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, the guy blowing up military bases. And then he also has Magneto now, right? The Magneto that's teaching students how to uh, coexist between, you know, in a world that has humans and mutants, right? So there's this crazy um, evolution uh, of Magneto, our pal Magneto, that Quentin has to kind of come to terms with and understand, well, wait a minute, here's a guy I've been idolizing my whole life, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's something here I'm missing. And that's what the story is really about. Him kind of realizing if Magneto can change, uh, if Glob, my pal, can change, why can't I? And so that's what the story is really all about. I've been on a similar journey with Magneto. I just spent a month researching him and four hours recording about him. And now I'm like, oh, I kind of get him a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's obvious. To me, he's one of the, you know, if you look at the, the catalog of Marvel villains, he's one of the most fascinating. Him, Dr. Doom are probably the two most fascinating villains out there because the, what's the mark of a good villain? A villain who believes he's not a villain, right? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're not a villain, right? They're, they're a hero in their story. Mystique, and, Mystique being on the list too, I think. Sure, sure. Um, and Stiltman, you gotta love Stiltman. But <laughs> um, so that's, that's kind of why I got into the story. And again, you know, being able to sort of play with the toys when they said to me, well, who's gonna be in this thing? I'm like, well, Wonder Man is obviously gonna be in it because he's one of my favorite Avengers and I have to put him in. And then I just started throwing people in and I'm like, I'm going to get this guy in because this is the last time I'm going to tell this story. So let's do this character. It's kind of like my Colossus story uh, that the scene you mentioned at the end, the gallery scene. Uh, yeah, I wanted to land the story and basically land Peter's arc there. But the most important thing for me on that page is that I got Wolverine into it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kevin and Daryl, who are your favorite villains? Oh, <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> I have to think a moment. Uh, <sighs> if it's Stuntman, um, you can say that. That's okay. <laughs> I mean, Stuntman, Stuntman's pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm going to take a page from your book, Neil, where you mentioned Wonder Man and go with a West Coast Avengers draw and say that their arc with Kang was really good. Um, mm -hmm. I mean... Now in the MCU, where we're getting to see who Kang is in the different iterations, I think that that little arc in West Coast Avengers is a masterclass in sort of what he can do and how, how you can jump between different time periods. Um, and you got to see a, a lot of 
I really like the Avengers. They were my first Marvel love. And I love the West Coast Avengers because it's not the Avengers. It's the zany cousin, um, which is more soapy because it's the 80s. So, well, Daryl, I'll have to have Steve Englehart back on and you and I can talk about West Coast Avengers with him. That's such a good Yes, one. absolutely. Uh, can I come on that one too? Because yeah, there you big, go. I'm a big Wacko fan. So, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about it. I'll, I'll talk to Steve. We uh, we have uh, just just throwing some pitches out there. If you're a Kang the Conqueror fan, uh, Colin Kelly and Jackson Lanzig did an incredible Kang the Conqueror series. Uh, and Christopher Cantwell in his recent Iron Man run did a two part two part uh, uh, thing with Stiltman recently. That's stunning if you haven't read it yet. Uh, uh, Kevin, did you think of your favorite villains? I, I was going to say uh, Dakin Dakin when he was crazier <laughs> because um well because he's you know a bi guy fellow bi guy like me i always love that but he's also like such a crazy person manipulative and you know killing people randomly and just like going insane and i i don't know i love that i love that little bit about him <laughs> so the disaster uh, bisexual himself yes yes i don't know just just a little bit of a, a fun time with him <laughs> oh this is this is really fun to chat um do you guys have questions you'd like to ask me and if not that's okay too i, yeah, I do so you mentioned like they give you a list they're like here are the people who who are available um how do you make that determination because there has to be a lot of fun people on that list that aren't in heavy rotation already so what how do you go about thinking how to fit a character in what's that thought process like so it's it's one part gut and one part do I have a story here, right? So there's um, look, one of the key things I think from School of X that you, you may notice when you read the book is that all the characters are, are the, they're the students, right? There's not a lot of stories in there that are focused on the teachers, the, the established characters. They wanted to sort of bring some of the characters that don't really get a lot of uh, spotlight on them and give them sort of a, a place, right? And so... Generally, I, I always like to pitch more than one story. So I, I, I think I pitched a, a gold ball story and, and some others. Um, but Quentin was always this character that I was like, nobody's going to do a Quentin story. And I love the characters. Uh, you know, people can kind of can see by hear by me kind of speaking about him. Um, he is this character that really kind of struck me where I basically, like I said, the gut aspect, I said, I don't know that I have a story yet, but I really want to write a Quentin Quire story. Um, and then as I started to kind of sit down and think about well, what am I going to do that, you know, people haven't done, this one just sort of kind of came together. The, the thing about this story, you, you mentioned Kang a second ago. Um, Kang is in, the, is in the story as well. And at the time I started writing the pitches, um, the Disney Plus show Loki had just come out. Mm-hmm. And I love that show. And I really kind of was watching it and kind of digging it. And Loki's voice as sort of a trickster, kind of like rascal character, really inspired what I did in Kid Omega, where there was the sense of, you know what, I'm just going to write this guy. It's going to be a first person story because he's the star of his show. And that's what I want to do here. And, um, really writing it at the same time that I was watching it. And then Kang, well, I don't know if he's Kang yet, but, you know, just kind of shows up at the end of the story. Whoever hasn't seen the show, sorry. Um, and so a lot of that really just kind of coalesced as I was really watching the show and thinking about what I wanted to do. And then I was watching Loki. I was like, well, these are a couple of pieces I really want to put together. So it became 
part gut, part of like, I want to write this character, but also like, I think I have a story that I can kind of hang here. Um, and that's what it kind of comes down to for a lot of this stuff, right? So we, if you pitch any characters, a lot of the times I'll say, oh, I would love to write this character, but like, perfect example, uh, Pun the Punisher. I could not write a Punisher story to save my life. I don't relate to the character. I don't like the character. I have no stories I want to tell with that character. Harley Quinn, same thing. Don't love the character. Just not for me. There's some characters that you're just like, from a gut perspective, I have nothing to say here that other better people could be saying. Um, and then sometimes you're like, yeah, I've got probably like 10 Captain America stories in my head that I would love to bring to, to the page or screen or what have you, sure, just yeah. because you just relate to a character sometimes and things just inspire you, right? So when you're handed a list and you're basically said pick or who you want to write, um, you really have to rely on those two elements, the sense of just like, I think I have a story that I want to tell about this person and then really kind of like qualifying and then saying that, you know what, this is a story that could work. Jason Aaron and Ben Percy have done a lot of Clinton Choir or Kid Omega stories over the last several years. But frankly, your short story gave me a different understanding of the character. I won't see him different. Or I won't see him the same in the comics now. Uh, and that's part of the beauty of the long form is, you know, Carrie Harris takes a character like Triage or, you know, Tristan takes a character like Outlaw uh, or Robbie takes a character like Anol. And you, you see them differently because you get to hear them explored. You you look at their powers from their perspective and what they offer. Yep, yep. And you don't get those voices in the comics with the minor characters as much. Well, um, I think I think prose also lets you expand that, right? So when yeah. I when I did the the Craven's Last Hunt, right, is a perfect example. Craven's Last Hunt is a classic Spider-Man storyline that I grew up reading and has been my favorite Spider-Man story of all time. It came out in, in the in the mid '80s by James Mattis and Mike Zek, and it's uh, a really uh, psychological dark tale yeah. uh, about Spider-Man Craven. And, and there's more to it than that, obviously. But they had six issues, right, to work with, and they did it masterfully. But doing a prose tale, you really kind of get the chance to dive deeper into a character's head and really kind of look at stories about that have been told about that character and bring some other elements in. And that was really kind of fun to do with Craven because I got to really dive into who he was as a character or who Spider-Man is as a character, right? Um, and so this, you know, uh, the books that we're doing for, for Aconite, there's that sense of taking a character and there's, I mean, there's a little bit of a sense of ownership, right? Like you, you kind of like, yeah. I kind of want to write all the Kid Omega stories for, for Aconite right now, because I was able to really spend a lot of time in, in this guy's head and, and understand him a little bit more. Um, and I think what was actually really fantastic is you mentioned Jason, Aaron, and, and you know, and you look at Jonathan, what, you know, what's happening with Ben Percy with, with X-Force, um, you really get to see this evolution from the Morrison run all the way to what's happening now. And look at a, a guy who, as I mentioned, is just a giant asshole, um, realize that maybe there's more to life than being a giant asshole. And if you look at him now, he's found love, he's found acceptance. There's this sense of just like, I could be a better person if I really just applied myself. Uh, uh, so the, uh, um, I've only read your Marvel work, uh, your, your Craven book, which if you haven't read Craven's Last Hunt, so amazing. Uh, and I'm a huge fan. Clearly you're an incredible writer. You put a ton Thank of you. heart and thought. Uh, what an honor to have you here. Before we transition into the, into the issue, uh, Kevin, I wanted to uh, ask very quickly, tell us about your most wholesome Cyclops cosplay 
And then the opposite end of the spectrum, your least wholesome Cyclops. <laughs> uh, well, I guess the mo- most wholesome one is just my, like my, uh, my 90s suit before the upgrade, I should say, <laughs> because I had a, a different bodysuit at first, um, which was just boring blue, but my new one has more shading and stuff on there, which helps. Um, as far as the less wholesome one, I guess I've done pinup versions where it's just, you know, you got the utility belt and then you have like a little pair of underwear <laughs> and, you know, and some gloves and you just, you know, rock the rock the visor and there you go. And <laughs> I've worn that out and about. I've been hired to do a geeky uh, club night in that. And then uh, uh, just for photo shoots, I've done that. So... <laughs> Yeah, and your cosplay is really, really wonderful. We'll have you plug your social media at the end, but sure. you're, you're you're doing great. It's it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what's the what's the fan reaction been like? Oh, people love it. They they think I'm like the ultimate Cyclops cosplayer. They're like, you look exactly like him. It's perfect. And then when you have me with like Dorkside Fitness and the uh, the Phoenix, who did Wolverine and Jean, we had a little thruple. It was perfect. Um, <laughs> that just was like a really great time. And we did that in Vegas. I got to stay with Dorkside there, and we had a good time. <laughs> Okay, so as we turn to X-Men number 41 and we're looking at the cover, you know it's scary because it's all in red. <laughs> we get to see uh, uh, Beast and Iceman fighting a very bizarre-looking villain in a loincloth slash body armor. Uh, what do you guys think of this cover? It says, now strikes the subhuman, with a reminder that at the end of the issue, we get to see Cyclops' backstory. Uh, what do you guys think of this cover? Was it effective for you? Yeah, it works. I mean, it definitely makes a statement. Uh, you know, this guy is like crazy wild hair everywhere, hairy shoulders, you know, like, <laughs> um, and then you can see the, the action and, and the whole, I like the Jesus Cyclops, but then the whole red in there reminds me of Cyclops too. I'm like, Ooh, yes, this is all there. So <laughs> Are you... I think that's effective too, because he's not on the cover. I mean, he's in, yeah. the, corner, he's in the corner box, but like you really are just seeing Beast and Iceman. And so there is this sort of, but his name is quite large over the logo. So I think there is kind of a nice full circle tie into that. Yeah. And uh, thinking about the covers at the time, and I've been on this podcast before, I've read the old school Avengers issues, and this really stands out. This is a cover that you're going to grab someone's attention with when it's sitting in that spinner rack or, you know, on that wall of comics all the other ones are going to be pretty colorful and have a lot going on. This one is red. It's going to grab your attention and make you want to pick it up. I want to like this cover. I don't. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why. I think I think the monster himself is just weird for me. We, we emphasized <laughs> this last issue with the Frankenstein's monster, but this is the time in comics when the Comics Code Authority was very careful around monster themes. You weren't allowed to use the word vampire or zombie in a book, uh, you know, as an example. So we have this kind of a horror theme. I think they're Roy Thomas is trying to push that limit, maybe drawing a new little bit of audience. As we, yeah. at, oh, I'm sorry, Carol, go ahead. Well, they had to use weird words like Zuvembi instead of zombie. <laughs> like there were Zuvembis. Um, so you can see that in some Avengers comics. So and the the Magia. I mean, the, the they couldn't, say, they couldn't say Mafia, right? So yeah. Uh, so as we as we flip to page one, uh, we we open immediately on a full page spread of uh, of the character grotesque. Uh, Kevin, describe grotesque for us. <laughs> <laughs> He's like uh, he looks like a hulkier version of like uh, He Man. 
kind of <laughs> like a more crazy, like I guess a zombified version in a way. Uh yeah, it's it's definitely makes a statement that pink thing and the loincloth, and uh yeah, it's definitely something to behold. <laughs> he's he's a little Wendigo like, but yes, kind of like Wendigo in drag. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's got a big bushy wig on. He's got pink uh harness and orange loincloth and boots. Uh somebody dressed him up all pretty before he headed out to smash some <laughs> things. Uh it's 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 uh it's something. Um so yeah, let's uh let's jump on in. Uh Kevin, you uh will you take the first five pages? Kind of summarize what happens and we'll talk about it a little bit. Sure. So pretty much this creature, he doesn't have a name yet. Um <laughs> uh he's just like opens up into the train subway area and the train is coming at him he's like oh i better stop this train <laughs> and he kind of picks it up and everyone's like whoa what's happening <laughs> um and beast and iceman happen to be on this train and they're like oh well this looks like something we have to fight and <laughs> they go out and investigate and it's like grab your costume and let's go uh <laughs> And, and luckily it's dark so they can sneak away from their girlfriends without revealing their exactly like, let's let's leave the girls yes <laughs> i would also just like to point out that if this is a new york city train like it's not so easy to get those doors open but i guess beast has no problem doing that right there you go yeah and this is this is the it's, first time we've seen a uh, vera cantor and zelda in uh, zelda kurtzberg in a little while this, this is beast and iceman's girlfriends back in the 60s yeah. Uh, they come around in and out of the series, but yeah, we haven't seen them in a good while now. Uh, I'm happy to see them back. And they're just normal people, correct? They're just normal yeah. civilians, and they they have to they're secret. You know, Zelda they works know. Zelda works in a coffee shop, and Vera's a librarian. Yeah, okay. they're uh, they're just cute little gals in the '60s. <laughs> mm, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm not. I I haven't read the first forty uh, in a while, but but do they know that they're mutants? Nope. Nope, they uh they have this whole secret identity thing. There's a running gag of like how they always sneak away on the dates. In fact, you see Vera in a minute be like, um, I haven't seen you in weeks, and now you're running off again. Like, where, right. where are you going? <laughs> it's almost it's almost stupid <laughs> how, often, how often it happens. Uh, uh Kevin, keep us going. All right. So moving on to the second page. Uh the battle uh ensues. Um, you know, beast is slamming them. Uh <laughs> Bobby tries to throw like this ice boomerang at him. Oh, and this is where he gets his name. He's, he calls him, <laughs> he calls, you're so unbelievably grotesque. He's like, grotesque. I like it. That's what I'll be called now. Ha ha ha. And uh, you know he's bad because it's grotesque with a K. Yes. <laughs> it's so, by the way, it's so random that he picks the name that basically puts him down, right? It, like, he, I think the, so the line here is, is that fortunate? He's so unbelievably, he doesn't say like, why not like I'm the unbelievable or I'm the fortunate? He says, no, I'm grotesque. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a famous scene in the Avengers. Ultron, it creates the vision and the vision attacks the Avengers. And the wasp is like, oh, it's like some unholy vision. And he's like, yes, vision shall now be my name. Like there's a there's this, this trope back then where you just hear a word and <laughs> suddenly your whole identity. <laughs> Like, no, it's but it's, it's like it's like it's like somebody saying like, "Oh, he's a g, he's a g, ugly genius," and it's like, "I'll be the ugly, like be the genius, <laughs> be the genius." No, unbelievable, you know. Yeah. <laughs> fair, fair. Uh, Kevin, keep going. 
All right. So um, he throws the ice boomerang at him and it doesn't do anything. So then he's like, okay, well, let me just put you in some ice then. I'm going to encompass you all in some ice. And uh, <laughs> this is when he just he quickly breaks out of that too. So uh, this is definitely like some brute of a man. <laughs> um, <laughs> Iceman uses a super cool like ice boomerang too. Yeah. I think it's awesome. <laughs> right. So, but yeah, the ice boomerang, it looks cool. Do boomerangs actually work though? Have you tried an actual boomerang? I don't think they work like that, like they're supposed to. I've never tried a boomerang. Certainly not one made of ice. Yeah. Whenever I throw a boomerang, it just goes. It yeah, never, comes, never back. comes back. <laughs> so the fantasy. Okay. Was it was he but was he trying to get the boomerang to go around grotesque and come back? Because like it just throw an ice ball. Yeah, no, why, yeah. why a boomerang? He yeah, I don't know. There's a great Spider-Man villain named Boomerang, by the way, but that yeah. has nothing to do with this issue. <laughs> <laughs> just just join you all the cool shapes he can make. You know, that's what yes. it is. <laughs> Maybe Marvel wanted to sell some ice boomerangs. Maybe. Um <laughs> uh, uh, so they keep fighting. Uh he he eventually grotesque sneaks away into a tunnel and I the use the they use the words gaping hole, which is a little it's interesting use of word there. <laughs> there's, um, there's a lot of unfortunate verbiage in the in the 60s. Uh we see a lot of like penetrate and harder, harder. Like there's a lot of that kind of stuff back then. Yeah. <laughs> so fun times. Uh that's, so he that's oh, fun. Go ahead. I was gonna say that's what Tumblr is for, right? To find those panels. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so he sneaks away and he he like puts a boulder in front of it so they can't follow him. Uh so they decide to go back to meet with their ladies friends, and uh <laughs> uh and they are on the street uh and come back and meet them up and they're like, Where have you been? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you you always leave me alone. Um, look, how, look how fabulous Vera and Zelda are looking. I know, so smart looking. <laughs> they got and the glasses. There's and bangs and earrings and yeah. Poor closeted Bobby. When Aww. when Zelda's like, "Yo, where were you?" And he's like, "I did what any red blooded all American boy would do when he's alone in a darkened train with the love of his life." I was looking for a match. <laughs> oh, Bobby. Yeah. And uh, Zelda says, if I find out you've been two-timing me, you penny-pinching Romeo, to which she says, perish the thought. What I've got waiting for me isn't half as cute as you. Honest. <laughs> like, he's trying real hard to convince. <laughs> I just love the way they, they talk. It's, it makes me laugh. <laughs> it's so cute. Yeah. Uh, uh, so Daryl, take us through uh, pages six through ten, where we learn grotesque's origin story, which is yeah. nonsense. <laughs> and it, when you assigned me these pages, I didn't realize what a gift they are. Like <laughs> part of my week, because these five pages, dear listeners, are bangers. Um, oh, welcome. <laughs> grotesque. We see that he was part of this really high tech subterranean society that was inhabiting caverns. I think all over the earth is the implication because they just go on and on and on down there. 
And we've reviewed on the podcast before. There is a whole like world under the surface called Subterranea that's divided into different lands. We in the Steve Orlando episode, we talk a lot about uh, you know Tyrannus and Mole Man being at war because they have different factions of Subterranea. So this is another one called, occupied by the Gortakians. Yeah, the Gortakians. Um, <laughs> and uh, there is a King Chrono with a K, so he's bad. Maybe. Um, <laughs> Or he's involved with time, or both. And they would um, basically make volcanoes happen. That um, when they were at war, they would clash so hard that it would make volcanoes spew. Uh, but then one day, there was a really big bomb that went off. I think the implication is that they were victims of the atomic bomb. Is my right. off of this. So it's unclear. It's funny because the panel shows one of the volcanoes sort of getting exploded and with a great sound effect, Baroom. Baroom. Uh, Baroom. Uh, and then they talk later about radiation, but you don't actually see like what happens. No. So when this bomb, we presume, hits, we actually see grotesque when he was just um, Prince Gortok and. He is trying to do anything to save anyone, um, but it's no use. He runs away with his um, his princess, the lovely Ingar, but she dies. Uh, everyone dies. He's the only one left alive, and he has this radiation sickness, and I think his coloring, if you think of glow-in-the-dark toys and how they are supposed to be white, but they're slightly yellow, yeah. it in the dark. I charge him up in front of the sun for 15 minutes, yeah. lights, and see if he glows. <laughs> like an old sector or something, yeah. Like so like, he, after running down his whole backstory, he, uh, <clears throat> he says, I'm alone, and I'm going to take this out because of the human's atomic radiation made me grotesque. And he's going. he wants to destroy the entire world because every villain wants to. It's their dream. He, he has a vision board destroying the world is like torn from three different magazines and taped up there. Oprah would be proud. But he's got like, he's got a cause. Like his whole people were wiped out. Poor guy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, someone's to blame for that. And it's everyone on earth. <laughs> Isn't this just like the Submariner story, but for like a dude who lives underground instead of in the water. I mean, and with a really bad weave. <laughs> really bad weave. <laughs> He also doesn't look that different before the explosion and after yeah. I'm realizing like he, he, he says he's kind of mutated, but he kind of just looks the same. same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can't see what color eyes he has before, but afterwards they are pink. So yeah, that changed. Cause radiation, right? <laughs> <laughs> then we're going to cut over to the X-Men where they're training and Cyclops is supposed to really focus his eye beam to just nudge the lock, but he smashed it bits. And Professor X is angry and disappointed. Can I, can I just interrupt you? I took some, yeah. like, I took the put these little like comments down for myself as I went through this earlier yeah. in the week, and I just want to read the note I have on that moment where Cyclops messes up, and it literally is four words, and the words are, "Cyclops, you're the worst." <laughs> <laughs> you had one job. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And Professor X is like, oh, whatever, Scott, like move over, Warren, you do your thing. Okay, you're going to glide and dodge these beams, but you can't put your arms in front of you. And he does it really well, but then there's some suction, um, tremendous suction. And he uh, um, is being sucked into a hole. And in Professor X's words, um, Marvel Girl, um, get him out of the hole faster, faster. Um, and she's doing her best, Professor. And he said, that's not good enough, not yet. Um, and then she pulls him out. It only took eight seconds. And he's like, if there's an evil mutant behind that sucking hole, you both would be toast. And, um, Professor X is extraordinary, like, jerk asshole. Yes. Now I know where that Xavier is a jerk comes from, right? (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about this in a second. I'll give you a revelation. But yes, Xavier is a huge jerk in the 60s, generally. Yeah, Kitty Pride was right. Yeah. There you go. said that. (laughs) That's um, where Cyclops got it from. <laughs> <laughs> Mentors, you know. The apple yes. doesn't. The apple doesn't fall far from the psychic tree. And uh, Bobby, Bobby, and our uh, bounding beast come in to break the news about grotesque, and they're like, "Hey, sorry, we're interrupting this trading thing." And Professor X is like, "Why are you in here in your street clothes?" <laughs> like why are you hung up on that fact we have to tell you something he's like no bye and just leaves um he goes away gene follows and then he discloses to gene ah oh, it's probably a little hard and um she agrees with him which seems to be her thing in this issue she's just going to go with the flow of whatever charles says um, well, and she's, keep, she's out, keeping a secret of some kind. Yes, because if you could just tell them the secret that I that you told me, but he refuses, and you don't learn what the secret is in this issue. Oh, so I that was confused. I was wondering if there was a secret I missed in issues one through forty. Nope, I'll explain it in a minute. It's a future issue revelation, so I'll give you the mm. spoiler in a minute. And then to, to close out my set of pages, we see one panel of Hank just about to tell the full story of grotesque. Luckily, they realized we already read that earlier in this issue, so we don't. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we go to a professor who has this, he's testing this device to make um, micro earth tremors with an oscillatron, a nuclear oscillatron, which seems real dangerous. And maybe you shouldn't be doing that in the middle of Manhattan. But the, (laughs) the Board of Regents is like, you know what? why don't you just give it another try? Like one more try. If you don't move the earth underneath us, don't go, but fire it up. Let's see what it can do. And that sets off rumbles down where grotesque is and it's going to start irritating him. So does anyone know what oscillating or, or an oscillatron would be? Trying to think, do you have the answer? So the definition of oscillation is movement back and forth at a regular speed. So they're just creating like a fancy, you know, science term for like a vibrating machine, basically. (laughs) Uh, um, Before I do the revelation of what's actually happening with Professor X, let's hear some of your reactions, uh, uh, you know, Kevin or Neil from these early pages here. Anything that uh, stood out to you? So it's funny because, uh, yeah, obviously I was trying to follow the story such as it is. 
But <laughs> I, I, I tend to kind of focus a little bit on the craft when I look at a comic, right? And so I'm going to talk about craft and comic books for a second, because if you get a chance to look at this issue, um, like this page that we're on right now, where we're looking at the scientists and then we're looking at grotesque in his underground base or whatever it is. And also on the next page, it's very finely detailed and the backgrounds are kind of nice and what have you. But if you go back a couple pages where the X-Men are in the danger room, which is supposed to be super like technologically advanced and amazing, there are no backgrounds. There are literally no backgrounds. It's just, it's just solid color. Yeah. It's just solid colors and blanks. And it's so odd that Heck and Tuska just left the backgrounds in the danger room empty and then decided, oh, I guess we're going to put all of our CGI budget into <laughs> grotesque and his background. And some draperies. And some draperies, yes. <laughs> but but we're going to leave the danger room as just solid color, which sort of stuck, stood out to me. That's interesting. I didn't notice that on the first read. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah, and I, was, I would say because... I thought they might be in the danger room, but then I wasn't sure until he actually said it. I'm just like, maybe they're just training outside. I, you know, they, they don't make it really clear where you so are. I'm, I'm going to throw some shade and do some sort of uh, some some inker jokes here. And I have to actually go look and see who the inker was for this book and make sure it wasn't Vinny Coletta. Because I thought maybe he just erased all of the danger room backgrounds when he inked the book. <laughs> but it, it was not. It was it was Tuska. <laughs> Um, the, uh, the first appearance of Cyclops finally on page eight, Kevin, did you have a moment of joy there? Oh, I did. I'm like, yes, here he is. Yes. <laughs> and even though, you know, he failed at being simple, I, I found it very charming. <laughs> I'm like, of course you're going to break it because, you know, <laughs> it's like, you're powerful. Yeah. Own it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I'm gonna give I'm gonna give the spoilers here, and for okay. anybody, I mean these are 60 year old spoilers, so it's fine. During the Factor Three epic that just took place, the X Men meet the mutant master, who is an alien posing as a mutant to try to get mutants to go to war. It's a long story that you don't need more details on. The mutant master's right hand man is a new character called the Changeling who has the worst hat in comic books history. <laughs> and we learn very briefly in issue 39 that the, the changeling superpower, it's literally like a one panel reveal, is to change shape. Uh, we're going to learn later. Next issue, Professor X supposedly dies in battle with Grotesque. But we learn several issues after that, that it's not actually Professor X who dies, it's actually the changeling. And what we learn here is that Professor X has learned there's some aliens called the Xenox who are on their way to Earth, and he's the only person who can stand against them. So he has retreated into a sub-basement to prepare for this alien inv invasion, and he's asked the Changeling to pose as him. So Professor X in this issue is not actually Professor X, it's the Changeling. And for you modern more modern X-Men readers or, or viewers, the Changeling is a super obscure character, but the character Morph from the cartoons is based oh. on the changeling. <laughs> so if you know Morph, yeah, that's uh, that's where he comes from. So uh, so there's the secret that Gene knows. Professor X only told Gene. So when he, when the X Men believe he's dead in the next few issues, she's the only one that knows he's actually alive. But she can't tell them because then it would spoil his alien invasion preparation plans. Uh, any thoughts on this big revelation? Makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. <laughs> I. Uh... 
I want a changeling to take my spot, except I just take vacation. Like, <laughs> go ahead, you do the work. And well, I'll be back in three weeks. Okay. Clearly, yeah. clearly, he's terrible at it. He's just gonna yell at everyone in your life while you're gone. <laughs> True. <laughs> so, so Cyclops basically learned how to yell because of changeling, not because yeah. of Professor X. Oh. Well, <laughs> Professor X has been yelling at them for a. And long by the time. and by the way, by the way, that actually would piss me off even more by Cyclops. Cyclops just got yelled for messing up at the danger room by Changeling, right? <laughs> well, and Jean Grey, he's like, you took eight seconds. <laughs> Dude, you, think... change, you change shape. Neil, he's got a laser you, in his eyes. Will you yeah. walk us through pages 11 through 15? Tell us how the, the first part of the grotesque story ends. Sure. So so our man grotesque is, is getting ticked off at these scientists because they keep throwing tremors his way. And he comes up with the very smart idea saying that, well, maybe I should figure out what's making the tremors happen because I will use it to destroy the world, uh, uh, though I myself must perish in the Holocaust, which as a Jew comic creator, the word Holocaust always jumps out at me. So Holocaust. Um, and then back at the college, um, the scientists are telling this doctor, all right, you, you, you've, you've proved that you've done, that you can do this, but you're gonna destroy the earth. So maybe we should shut it down. Uh, and so the invention should be only used to benefit mankind. And they say, well, let's talk about this later. We'll just guard the machine and move it. And so in the next page, we cut back to our friendly X-Men folk. Um, and Iceman is upset that he's back and they're up past lights out time, which, Bobby, that's really not something that you should care about, but sure. They're all adults now. I know. They're not like nine. Um, and and for some reason, uh, Professor X has decided we're going to go, you, you, you need to go find Grotesque. And so they're all going to go except for Marvel Girl. Um, and Cyclops is wondering why not Marvel Girl. Uh, and he wonders uh, maybe Professor X is in love with Marvel Girl, just as he is. So, which he uh, is, because there's an old flashback of him lusting after Jean in the early X Men comics, which is disgusting because she was a teenager then. Yeah, (laughs) correct. But, but it's just, you know, the start of Cyclops and his very jealous ways. Uh, And so now they are back in the subway tunnels, um, back at the uh, boulder that Beast couldn't open before, but now apparently can. Uh, And I guess just a little bit more can-do attitude, and obviously Cyclops' laser beams, uh, which he should have used in the first place, um, finally uh, opens it up. And he says something which I'm kind of curious about. Uh, I think I can force it without using up all my optic power. And maybe I'm not as familiar with our pal Scott, as we, but is there a limit to his optic power? Yes. Is it from the sun, right? Yeah, but, yeah. That's not, but that's not established until much later. The use of his optic blast in the 60s is very inconsistent. Sometimes it's a force blast, sometimes it's a laser, sometimes it's a heat ray. Uh, and so when we see him using up his power, he, that's mm, sometimes he runs out of power very quickly. Sometimes he's moderately impressive, but we don't see him being super impressive most of the time. Yeah, there's also seems to be times when he can fire multiple blasts at once in different directions. Uh, it's it's a little it's a little silly <laughs> and inconsistent. We also pay attention. Uh, we've been paying attention lately to the sound effects used for Cyclops Octic Blast. In this issue, we get a z with z's, and then we also get a zatok. So for Correct. those that are following, uh, our a lot of z's. Favorite, our least favorite is frap. 
<laughs> or is it <laughs> frappe? frappe? Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So basically, they get through the boulder, and Angel goes ahead. But I actually want to point out, and again, that this is a craft thing. For those of you who get a chance to look at the comic in panel three, uh, our pal Scott has a very tiny head. Uh, <laughs> if you get a chance to look at that panel, for some reason, his head is super small, and I don't know what's happening there. But that's kind of a fun little moment for me. Um, all right, so they get through the the boulder and they go looking for uh, grotesque under flying through his his underground base. Uh, this impressive alien civilization, uh, an angel is flying around and beast is jumping around uh, and he uses his sense of smell to figure out that grotesque was here uh, and recently. And so they are going to tell professor X that he was here, but nobody can contact professor X because there's too much radioactivity to use the radios. <laughs> and apparently uh, they cannot uh, contact a Omega level telepath. Well, and change because Changeling's not a telepath. telepath. So that makes sense. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'm like, oh, right. Which is interesting because in the next panel, uh, B says, "Why doesn't Professor contact us?" As he could easily do by mental telepathy, uh, and they don't know. So maybe there's something about this place that blocks his mental powers, or he's got other things on his mind, like <laughs> Jean Grey. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so they, uh, they're going to get cracking, uh, according to Cyclops and find, uh, and beast, he, Cyclops and beast are going to go forward and find grotesque while Angel and Iceman go back to get in touch with professor X. Uh, and in the next panel, uh, zero hour has come for the earth because grotesque has found the scientists, uh, and is looking for the weapon, but really the scientists aren't there. It's just some poor schmuck who is cleaning up. Uh, this poor and, grad student. Oh. <laughs> this grad student just got his ass handed to him. Yep, he's a craven coward, uh, according to Grotesque, and gets basically, uh, I don't know if he's fainting, or oh, I guess he is fainting. Yep, oh, yeah. he, he faints, and Grotesque decides not to leave him, but carry him <laughs> to find the weapon. I'm not sure why he's taking this poor guy, but they're off to find the trembling weapon. Um, back at the X-Men base, uh, Angel and Iceman are back looking for the professor. Um, but, uh, he left already. He's gone. And so they want Jean to come with them, but she says she can't, which is probably makes sense. She's probably going to guard Charlie and his underground base. Um, but Angel is sort of questioning all that. Uh, and he says she's distracted. Uh, it says if they... It's as if she and the professor don't care what happens to the other X-Men or to mankind, um, which is very dramatic for Angel. And on the next page, uh, Earth could use a bit of caring because I guess Grotesque has found the Earth, the device, right? The oscillatron, yes. Yes, the oscillatron. And the grad student has woken up. Uh, I guess he's still, he, he's still there. And he did not have a dream. Uh, and Grotesque wants to know, some, wants to, oh, he, no, they haven't found the weapon. I'm sorry. And he's, uh, he, he woke up this Grotesque, this, this guy, and he's fine, trying to figure out where it is. But uh, the grad student doesn't know where it is. And at that moment, Cyclops and Beast have arrived and are now about to go one-on-one -on -one with the gorilla-faced gargoyle, as Beast says. 
Um, and there's this very dramatic moment where he says, how grotesque says, I'll destroy first you and then the world. And the, the, the best part of the whole page is the next issue box in very big letters that says, uh, the death of professor X. <laughs> which I think is, which is, I think, a great dramatic way to end your comic. Yes. Who yes. cares about grotesque? <laughs> Professor X is going to die the first time of many. <laughs> <laughs> Except it's not actually Professor. X. Uh, right, but when I thought that was, I, th- I, th- I thought that was actually a great way to end it, right? Because yeah, yeah. the story itself is paper thin, obviously, but ending it with this really great, like, the key co- guy in the comic is about to die especially for the sixties when, you know, they weren't really killing people off as much uh, until Spider-Man later on, you know, um, what, do you guys was, think of, uh, cool. what do you guys think of grotesque as a villain? Effective, forgettable, forgettable. Yeah. It's pretty he's, he, like a lot of people, a lot of villains at the time, just as something to be an antagonizer, very generic, but <laughs> He stands out. The I mean, it's not a Jack Kirby design by any means, but he's kind of like I don't know, Radiation He Man or or, <laughs> or Drag Queen Wendigo. <laughs> well, it's like, look, it's also what twenty years before He Man, right? So yeah. You, you don't have a lot. Like there was at the time when the comic came out, there wasn't this this like oh he's He Man, right? It, it yeah. was kind of doing its own thing. Maybe um, maybe Marvel should sue Mattel for comics. Maybe there you go. Yeah. Uh, so for those that want to track and we'll we'll uh, talk more about grotesque next episode but so he appears this issue and next issue then so this is 1968 he comes back in Ms. Marvel number six and eight uh, in 1977 and then in Avengers annual number 20 and Avengers West Coast annual number six in 1991 as well as Iron Man number 12 annual number 12 then he shows up in Thor number 481 in 1994, and most recently in X-Men Manifest Destiny number one uh, in 2009. So this guy's come back a few times. He's been around at least, you know, uh, uh, eight or eight or ten times over the years. Well, he's, he's underground. Is he uh, friends with the Morlocks? Morlocks, yeah. <laughs> the Morlocks are in the tunnels. He's deeper. He's like a, he's like Mole Man level subterranean. Okay. Oh. <laughs> And now he runs like a Starbucks on Monster Island. I so. <laughs> that would be a great reveal. Let me uh, let me uh, summarize the last five pages very quickly. Now, Roy Thomas with Warner Roth is doing this five page back, five page backup about the origins of the X Men, and it goes on for several issues. We've seen Professor X in the early days seeking to recruit his first student. Uh, Cyclops can't control his eye beams. He's got these ruby quartz glasses, but he's been recruited by a supervillain named the Jack of Diamonds whose powers are telepathy, uh, brief teleportation, like nearby teleportation. And he also was exposed to atomic radiation, which turned his hands into diamond. So that's this weird, weird villain. Uh, At the end of the last issue in the last five page synopsis, we see Professor X arriving at the nuclear plant. Jack of Diamond's goal is to expose himself to further atomic radiation so he can turn his whole body into diamond. So this issue is called The Living Diamond. It's uh, Roy Thomas with Warner Roth, John Verporten, and letters by Sam Rosen. Uh, Professor X and Jack of Diamonds are blocking each other's telepathy. Jack calls (laughs) Professor X an egghead come lately. (laughs) 
which is such a bizarre thing. Uh, and then he hurls a steel support beam at Xavier, who ev- evades it with his psychic power somehow. I don't know how his powers work in this section. Uh, the ceiling collapses on Xavier, but we later learn he does not have telekinesis, but he somehow, again, uses like mental probes to survive the collapsing ceiling. Um, Jack takes Cyclops over to the Cyclotron facility nearby. Uh, Cyclops uses his optic blast on a security guard to uh, stop Jack from killing the guard. Uh, Jack then rushes inside and exposes himself to atomic radiation, which does turn him into uh, a full diamond form. He now calls himself the living diamond. Uh, Guards are rushing in to uh, find out what's going on, but Xavier knocks them all out with a (laughs) psychic blast presumably to protect them. Uh, And then he kind of mentally communicates with Cyclops for the first time. So this is like the first in-canon meeting of Cyclops and Xavier, uh, who ends up becoming, uh, Cyclops becomes like the first recruit of the X-Men. And then it's continued in next issue. Jack of Diamonds is a very forgettable, uh, obscure villain who basically is only remembered because he's the Cyclops guy from the origin story. (laughs) Uh, What did you guys think of these five pages as we cover them briefly? Well, he was kind of stealing Emma Frost vibe, wasn't he? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> He's a uh, tele- telepath who turns into diamond form. We talked about that last time. Maybe yeah. Emma Frost stole his vibe. Maybe, Yeah, I guess technically, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think it's interesting that Scott is wearing like nifty blue glasses. I've never seen him in such blue color before. So <laughs> this is like 16 year old orphan Scott. Like, oh. Okay. <laughs> did, yeah. So I missed I, I missed the the first parts of this, but did he already get the protective? Mm-hmm. These aren't the ruby quartz, are they? They I mean, are. His powers activated, and he went to an optometrist who just figured out that ruby quartz will block his blast somehow. Right. <laughs> and my, he's a, in my he's looking t- like a young Jack Kennedy here. I mean, well, kinda. This is John Kennedy on a sailboat off mm. of board. In my interview with Roy Thomas on the podcast, he's like, I don't know who came up with Ruby Quartz, but, you know, it sounded cool and it lasted. So we kept it. <laughs> I think I'd be really curious to do like a survey of people who were around in, in the 60s. Like how many people regularly wore bow ties? I, I'm, I'm just generally curious about that <laughs> because I noticed in early 60s comics, everybody's got a bow tie. It's very, uh, it's very leave it to beaver. Whenever the boys have a day off, they're all in suits and bow ties. Yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah. And, uh, I do have a question. So um, Charles escapes from this rubble and I don't know how, because he's in this wicker backed chair from the 1880s. <laughs> he just got back from like having a, a little sea bath or something. <laughs> and how's, how's he wheeling out? I there's a lot of rubble and those tires are not made for off-roading. Maybe he used his powers to make them think that he was lost in the explosion, but really he was off-site the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when uh, you met Gabriella, Daryl, when she when she came on the podcast the first time, she's like, that wheelchair, uh, Gabriella's a, 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 a disabled friend of ours who comes on the podcast quite regularly. She's like, that wheelchair is from like 1870. <laughs> <laughs> like, I expect like, a widowed aunt to be sitting in it <laughs> in Switzerland and Heidi is helping her or something. Not, not a really rich guy who has a bunch of jets. Yeah. It's like wicker. What is that? Yeah. Get about it. Get... I'd also like to point out that you mentioned earlier that our pal Jack here was making fun of the fact that Charlie is bald, but Jack 
is also really kind of losing his hair there. So, like, who who is he to, <laughs> to throw diamond stones? Yeah, he's he's got a weird hairdo, man. Uh, and we also know his his real name is Jack Winters, and he's trying to recruit Scott Summers. There's something <laughs> I don't know. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Unnecessary. He's a very forgettable villain who like shows up one more time and then a couple issues of She-Hulk in the 90s. And then that's all we ever see him. Um, ultimately, as you guys go back and read this 60s issue, I'm going to assume a lot of you have not read the old stuff or at least in a while. Uh, any impressions that stick out? Any final thoughts? I mean, we mentioned the language is somewhat awkward. Sure. Uh-huh. Uh, that's kind of a huge thing. And the fashion is interesting. Uh, yeah, I would want to read the next issue because Professor X is going to die. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested, even if I I already know it's a fake one, but I still am interested in seeing like how will this play out? Yeah, yeah. How is grotesque going to do? Like, this? here's this image of the final page of oh, cradling his corpse. So Angel's sad. looking good. Oh my, yeah, Angel's Angel's yeah. Oh, Kevin, you should do this costume uh, for cosplay, this angel costume. Okay. Yes. Uh, let's get my blonde going. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll do a shirtless version too. with wings. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And you can get a you can get a better weave than grotesque. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it and did Beast and Iceman's girlfriends go out with them again? Or did they dump them after being no, we still left get to see twice? Them. We still get to see them for a little while. Uh Vera Cantor has surprising staying power. Zelda a little less so. Uh, but yeah, both of them have been in the comics quite often. And Angel has a girlfriend back in uh, back in the 60s named Candy Southern, who's in the comics quite frequently. Sure. When I say frequently, I mean like a couple dozen times in 60 years. But, you know, it's uh, not super, not super common. I mean, Daryl, you would know, didn't she show up? Well, maybe not your era of X-Factor, but the original X-Factor. I thought she was throughout that entire original X-Factor run. She is. She's also in the Defenders, uh, and then she she's killed by the Phalanx in the nineties. Uh, in like the early nineties, she's killed during yeah. the Phalanx Covenant storyline. Oh, yeah. But Vera and Zelda are still alive and well. Ze- Zelda, um, she's available for someone to write about. Yeah, I love oh. Vera Cantor is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was. I would definitely. I think there's there's a story in all of the X Men's former former romantic partners just about like oh I get it now I get I get why they you know it's like it's like Mary Jane finding out about Spider Man eventually she's like all right that totally makes sense now I get it I would love to see a story like in an X Men Unlimited about all of them sitting in the cafe at GoGo uh, just ranting about their old boyfriends in the X Men that would be my favorite thing. As we are wrapping up here, you guys, let me just thank you all for your valuable time this evening. This is a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> I had really a good time laughing <laughs> with each of you and getting to know, uh, getting to, well, Daryl, I already know, but getting to know Kevin and Neil better. Um, as we are closing, let everybody know where we can find you online and what we might have to look forward to uh, coming up from you. Let's uh, let's go in the order of uh, Daryl and then Kevin and then Neil. Sure, you can find me at X Factor Files Podcast on Instagram. And sort of like Chad is taking us through a journey for the original X-Men, we just started the journey with X-Factor Investigations. So um, issue number one is coming up next week. So we just reviewed the whole Madrox miniseries. That episode is out and live on any podcast platform. Um, And by the time this comes out, there will already be a few issues in the can so you can catch up and then read along with us. And I'll be coming on the pod too, which I'm excited about. Oh, so. yes. Um, you are slated for 
um, a really exciting story arc to, um, you're going to help us unpack Civil War. I, uh, I did a long episode about Quicksilver recently. So Daryl's like, can we have you on for Quicksilver? And I'm like, yes, you can, because I have a lot to say. <laughs> and then Kevin. Uh, sure, you can find my podcast, Words of the Witches, pretty much everywhere, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube, all those things. Um, and I just did a bonus episode where I went to the actual manor in LA, and I interviewed the owner of the, the house, as well as the guy from Austria who made like the most accurate, detailed miniature model of the house and talk about their collaboration and stuff. So it's going to be very fascinating for that. Um, and if you want to follow my personal one, it's KGZ87. That's where all my cosplay and modeling and shirtlessness is. Uh, sometimes I sing things too. So it's all random. All my eclectic me. <laughs> uh, and then th- and thank you very much. And then uh, Neil. Uh, sure. So uh, on Instagram and Twitter, I'm Neil Clyde on both of those where I talk about comics and food pretty much and my kids um, and uh, what's coming up. So uh, we just announced yesterday that I have a uh, five issue miniseries coming out from Comicsology Originals starting in May with Andrea Moody called The Panic. And it's a story of 10 strangers who get trapped under the Hudson River uh, on a crash path train and have to work together and get through uh, cultural, political, and racial biases to survive. And it's kind of a fun horror uh, apocalyptic tale that we're hoping to do for a while. Uh, so the first issue of that comes out on Comixology on May 3rd. And then there's a collection by Dark Horse Comics coming out in November. Um, other than that, I'm co-writing a graphic novel with my pal Rance Hosley called Screaming for Vengeance, which is based on the Judas Priest, the classic Judas Priest uh, rock album. That's coming out from Z2 Comics in July. It's a fun sci-fi uh, graphic novel. And then I'm also doing for Z2 a short story for their upcoming uh, Little Earthquakes, Earthquakes collection based on the, the songs of Tori Amos. I'm doing a story with uh, Andy McDonald there called Crucify. Um, and I should actually mention for Screaming for Vengeance, it's illustrated by Chris Minton. Uh, I... I have to mention that because Chris is a pal of mine and he's doing some fantastic work. Uh, those are the three things that are coming out this year. I'm working on some other stuff that might be interesting interesting to the folks on this podcast, uh, but I can't talk about it yet. I love hearing stories about writers thriving with all these different projects. Uh, it makes me really happy to hear all these things you're engaged in. The reason I smiled so hard just now, I love Tori Amos, but uh, we were driving in the car the other day and my partner put on Tori Amos and my son who's 13 in the back seat goes, who's singing? I like her. And he goes, Tori Amos. And he goes, Tori Anus? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. We Tori explained is wonderful. <laughs> I uh, laughed so really it, hard. It was a terrible mishearing. <laughs> uh, it's actually going to be a great anthology. There's a lot of fantastic talent that uh, are doing work for Kelly Sudeconic, Neil Gaiman, Margaret Atwood, a uh, bunch of people really involved in this. Um, and it's the second anthology for Tori's work that I'm involved with. We did a book years ago called Comic Book Tattoo for Image Comics. It won an Eisner, and I did a short story there for Chris, who I'm doing the Judas Priest book with called The Beekeeper. Fantastic. You're an incredible writer, Neil. I look forward to looking at more of your work. Uh, I've only read your Marvel work so far, but I really look forward to it. Uh, on on Green Malkin, we uh, we are putting up the Magneto episodes as we are recording this. This will come out in a couple of weeks, but check those out. It's the most proud I've ever been of a podcast that we've put out so far. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will see you back here next time. Thank you so much for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. 
I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Grimalk and Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Grimalk and Lane can be found on Twitter at Grimalk and P, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Grimalk and Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Grey Malkin Lane.